Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hi, book lover. I am so glad you are here listening to my award-winning podcast, Thoughts from a Page, which is a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. This show is a passion project for me, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoy making it. I only interview authors whose books I have read and enjoyed, so if I am chatting with an author on the main show, it means that I really liked their book and feel comfortable recommending it to you. With so many books coming out weekly, it can be hard to decide what to read, so I work hard to find the best ones and share them with you. For more book recommendations and to find my backlist of interviews, visit my website at thoughtsfromapage.com. Are you looking for an engaging book community with unique bonus content? If so, I hope you will consider joining my Patreon community, which is filled with a wonderful group of readers. I offer three levels, page turners, lit lovers, and royal readers, and each level provides all sorts of cool bonus book content that you will not find elsewhere. If you're interested or want more information, the link to join is in my show notes. Today, Daniel Swearin Becker joins me to chat about Kill Show. Daniel is an author, television writer, and playwright living in Los Angeles. He graduated from Wesleyan University and received an MFA from New York University. I hope you enjoy our conversation. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome, Daniel. How are you today? Hi, Cindy. I'm doing great. I'm really excited to be here chatting with you. I am so excited you're here because I am a huge fan of books with unique formats. So Kill Show was right up my alley. And you have been getting some great reviews, Starred Publishers Weekly and Booklist. Yeah, no, those are very exciting to come in, especially I've, I've written a few other young adult books that were not as well reviewed. So when a, a similar outlet or the same outlet comes in with a nice review, it's, it's so nice to see. Well, they're well-deserved. I read it months ago. When your publicist pitched it to me, I thought, this sounds like something I will love. I read it. I actually picked it for my Patreon group's Traveling Galley program, which is where we get four or five copies of a galley and they pass it around. They've all been loving it. So I think it's going to be a big hit. I hope so. You know, I wrote it to be a crowd pleaser. It's obviously set in kind of a genre that people are obsessed with nowadays, the true crime genre. So I, I think it's really accessible. It's got twists and turns. It's not too long. So people enjoying it, that, that's really great to hear. Absolutely. Before we dive into my questions, will you give me a quick synopsis of Kill Show for those that haven't read it yet? Yes. The book starts off with what is intentionally a very generic premise of a missing teenage girl in a small town in America. But the book is really about the people in Hollywood who descend on this town and try to manipulate this family into turning their tragedy into entertainment. 
And these Hollywood interlopers, when when they come in there, the the consequences, the unintended consequences for them and for the people in the town really spiral out of control. And I wrote it to kind of examine what are the repercussions for the people making this content? You know, the moral gray area that they live in is this entertainment, is this truth? And I don't think I'd ever seen that explored in the true crime genre. So I really wanted to hit on that. That's what I like so much about it as well, was that you were taking an issue that is beginning to be explored more and more, but taking it from a different perspective than we're often seeing. Yeah. You know, I have a little experience making documentaries. It was my first job out of college. And I kind of know the nitty gritty behind the scenes of it. I wasn't making true crime, especially, but as a true crime obsessive fan myself, I had never really thought about what goes into making this. You know, the producers, the editors, the executives, what are their lives like? What are their moral calculations like? So I wanted to center the book on the behind the scenes people who turn these real life tragedies into the entertainment content that we all love. And I think the other aspect that has become another factor in the true crime industry is the internet and social media, something that has really changed the entire industry based on its reach and these people being able to create groups like the one that is created in your story surrounding Sarah's mystery on Facebook. Yeah, you know, I think the craziest thing that we've seen in, let's call it chapter two of the true crime boom, in chapter two, it's that we, the audience, are impacting the events in real time, whether it's from going on the internet and discovering clues and new leads and pointing the producers in a new direction, or it's taking up the advocacy on behalf of certain people and changing the results of a judicial decision. It's wild that those things can kind of happen in a 24-hour news cycle in a way that didn't really happen in chapter one of True Crime. So I knew I needed to add that to the book and have the obsessive fans who mean well, like you just mentioned. And then there's also the obsessive fans who are crazy and a little sinister and manipulating things in a bad way. So I really wanted to show both sides of the coin of how people who are obsessed with these stories can actually impact them as they're happening. Well, and even those who mean well can impact the story negatively. I mean, you can become so focused on something and think somebody is the perpetrator when they're not at all and completely ruin their lives, which you also touch on. Yeah. I mean, what you're describing there is like active participation. I think the um the biggest example that I have in my memory is when the Boston Marathon bombing happened there was a bunch of citizen sleuths who were trying to figure out who perpetrated that crime. And they hit on someone who ended up being innocent, but a mob of people marched to that person's house essentially to, you know, do vigilante justice. So I wanted to explore the concept of people who think they mean well, but don't really know all the facts and what consequences that has on the people on the ground when they get in the crosshairs of these kind of internet mobs. Absolutely. And I think that that probably happens way more than we realize when stories are taking on lives of their own and people are thinking somebody did something wrong and they become a target on the Internet. I mean, you hear that story all the time. And so it is. It's a little frightening that some poor, innocent soul suddenly gets targeted. Yeah, look, it really speaks to um, the participatory nature of of this genre, really, where we used to just consume media very passively. You know, you would watch it, you would read it. You may talk about it with your friends, but you would not be a participant in the actual events. 
it's fun to be a participant in the actual events, right? You, you feel like you're a part of something. There's a community around it. But I don't think there are very good checks and balances as to whether that participation is healthy, productive, well-informed. And I don't have the answers to those questions. I just thought it was very interesting to dramatize those events in a way I hadn't seen before. Well, and the flip side of that as well is that it's real people's lives. So yes, it's entertaining to get in there and participate, but you're not just playing a game. It's not like it's a murder mystery that you have to solve at a dinner club or something. I mean, it's actual people that are involved in these things. Obviously, your story is fiction, but I mean, in the real world, it is actual people's lives. And then you're really messing with their lives, their private lives, whatever is happening in their world. Yes. Look, you're really speaking to kind of one of the biggest themes of this book, which is how do you reconcile turning a real person's tragedy into entertainment and profiting off of it? And I hadn't thought about that too much until many years into kind of my true crime obsession that these people were having their tragedies exploited. And it was also a company could earn money or a group of people could earn their salaries. And that gives me a slightly queasy feeling to bring kind of capitalism into tragedy. I, I have no scruples about watching a, a scripted show or reading a fictionalized novel that has tragic elements to it. You don't feel like anyone's being exploited in that sense. But when it's true crime, of course, real people went through these events. And I do wonder if they're being exploited, if they're benefiting in any way. So what I really wanted to do was put those questions to the people making this content and have them struggle with the morality of what they were doing. Absolutely. And I completely agree with you on the fictional side. It's entertainment. They are not real people. It's a great escape. It's a good way to get involved in a story that takes you away from your own life, whatever it is we love about reading. But I think it's totally different when it's actual real life people. And there are so many problems that can come about with that. Why do you think people are so obsessed with true crime? It, it's a great question. And I think it, it speaks a little bit to the phrase that truth is stranger than fiction, where if something happened in real life, I think we lean into it a little more and it becomes more interesting to us, more relatable to us, more intimate to us than just something that a screenwriter or an author conceived in, you know, in their imagination. The, the possibility that the crimes, the true crimes we're learning about might happen to us or someone we know, I think gives us that little extra thrill. And I think it gives us a little satisfaction of like, but it didn't happen to me because I'm I'm lucky enough or I'm smart enough or I'm more deserving that it didn't happen to me. So that little extra satisfaction might speak to kind of the our voyeuristic fascination with these events. I'm always so curious about that. Yeah, it doesn't I don't think it speaks highly of us that we're obsessed with this, but enough of us are that that we can't be ashamed and I include myself in that group. Absolutely. And clearly that's why all this entertainment is being made because people are so fascinated with it. Well, I I think it speaks to something that I should have brought up a few minutes ago where I wanted to address kind of the morality of the people making this content, but something else that I thought about more and more as I was writing is what responsibility does the audience have? And I guess this goes to like basic economics 101 of supply and demand of if we, the audience, are demanding more and more of this content, are we causing people to go out into the world and find these stories and exploit these families and exploit these victims 
because they know that we will pay for it. And if that's true, do we owe it to kind of the, the community at large to be a little less voracious for this content so that there is not such a gigantic demand for them to give it to us? Absolutely. A little more discriminating in what we decide to watch or read. Or yeah, just feel a little more guilty and responsible for the fact that this boom is happening and some people might be suffering from it a little bit. Well, and one of the things you say in the promotional materials that came with my book was, how do people doing this professionally sleep at night? And that was one of the things I kept wondering as I was reading about Casey, the person who's the producer for the television show. Over and over again, I was like, how could she even sleep at night or even just live with herself? And then the father as well, Sarah's father. I was like, what kind of parent is he? (laughs) Yes, no, he is an awful parent. But speaking about Casey, like, let me be pretty literal here. She has to walk into a living room of two parents whose daughter has gone missing. And she has to convince them that bringing cameras into their lives is going to help them find their daughter. That is a tough manipulation to do. Casey believes it. I'll, I'll grant her that. And I, the, her kind of trump card in that conversation is not only will this help find your daughter, all this extra exposure, but you're going to get paid while it's happening because you're participating in this show. So I'm picturing Casey going to sleep at night and she's going, I was just with this family. They're sobbing. They're missing this daughter. And I convinced them there, there's enough money in this first check for them to open up their life to these cameras. That is something I don't ever want to be that person. And I'm curious how that person sleeps at night. But I guess you have to convince yourself that you're, you're doing a, a, a legitimate good by exposing this to a broader audience. I guess. But I just think if one of my children went missing, to flip it back to Dave, And I'm thinking, I'm the parent, and I have a child that's gone missing, and I'm so upset and scared. And then somebody's offering me money. (laughs) I would be like, I don't want money right now. I just want to find my child. I don't know. I just, the whole thing. You know, that was a really tough thing for me to be able to make believable. And I think I just had to lean into the desperation of the moment and picturing these parents and what is obviously the worst day of their life and the most desperate moment of their life. And if someone is coming in with an out-of-the-box idea that might make it 5% more likely for you to find your daughter, I think I can get those characters into agreeing with it. But it was it was tough, and I, I don't dispute that some parents would just shut the door in the face of a Hollywood producer who arrived like that. Oh, yes. And I'm not arguing with with the way you wrote it. I mean, Dave has his reasons for agreeing to it. So you did a very good job of making it believable. It was just between Casey and Dave, I was like, these people are terrible. <laughs> Let's tease the listeners here that Dave's reason for agreeing to it is is one of the twists in the book. And when he agrees to it in, in the early chapters, you won't know why exactly, but you will come to learn later on. Exactly. And it was very valid. And I thought that twist was amazing. So like, I, I really just thought the book is phenomenal. It's one of my five-star reads for the year. So it was definitely not a dig at that. It was more like, oh, Dave. I think there's so much that factors into your story because not only the true crime and the media, but I think now with all of this reality TV, there is this push for so many people to want to have their five minutes of fame. And I think that factors in as well, too, that people want to be interviewed and they want to show up on television and have people say, oh, I saw you on TV. Absolutely. I was definitely trying to point out that kind of new attitude that everyone wants those five minutes. And 
what I aspired to do was point out that most people don't realize what happens after those five minutes of fame and the unintended consequences of exposing yourself both to a TV show and to the internet. And I think everyone in the town comes to learn that while it might feel exciting or interesting to be the the star of your own docu-series, that comes with a lot of baggage that you can't predict for. A lot of unintended consequences that you will later regret. Yep. I think that's an interesting premise when authors interrogate or pursue that, the unintended consequences, because I do think that people don't always think through their actions and their choices and in the moment just agree to something thinking, oh, it doesn't really matter. And most of the choices we make do matter. And so it's interesting to see when that plays out. Absolutely. So I love unique formats, as I mentioned at the beginning. So the transcript format was a very big draw for me. I loved it. How did you decide to write in that format? Yeah, no, it's it's so exciting to hear that. And I'm like in love with this format. Just to be clear for the listeners, it's written as a fake oral history. And when I try to explain that to friends, it's, it's interesting because everyone knows what each of those words means, fake oral history, but it's a little hard to wrap your head around. And I got to give credit to, actually, I'll, I'll go back further. I'm obsessed with oral histories in general. And as we know, almost all of them are nonfiction. So there's serious oral histories like about the Great Depression and the Vietnam War. And then there's more fun ones that I enjoy, like the making of the movie Dazed and Confused. And I just found that whenever I'm reading these oral histories, I'm speeding through the pages. I love how the characters seem like they are in dialogue with one another, but they're, they're not, of course. It's just the editor or the journalist who's intercutting their testimonies to make it seamless and interesting. And then, of course, I finally read a couple of years ago, Daisy Jones and the Six. I assume you read that? That's what I was just going to say. That's the analogy I've been using to everybody is it's in the Daisy Jones format. (laughs) So I read that book. I loved it. I thought it it allowed for such intimacy and and fun with the characters. And I said to myself, I got to find a different genre to apply this to. And I thought, wow, crime, thriller, true crime, this would be the perfect way to tell a story that happened in the past. So I found 26 characters. I give all of them the opportunity to speak about this this missing girl event that happened 10 years in the past. And I found it so fun to write, so much easier to write. It, It was like putting this jigsaw puzzle together, but I saw the pieces so clearly in my head. And I felt like I was able to get inside the characters' voices and heads in a much easier way than whenever I've written in kind of the traditional third-person narrative. And they got to speak in their own voices. They got to have their own opinions. They got to contradict each other about the same events. So I'm, I'm kind of assuming that I, this is the only format I ever want to use for the rest of my life. That's how much I enjoyed it. Well, I love this format as well. I loved Daisy Jones so much. And so I have been saying this is written in the Daisy Jones format when I talk about your book a lot of the time, just because I think so many people know that. (laughs) So I'm glad Taylor Jenkins pioneered the format. I I got to give her credit. There might have been someone who did it before her, I'm sure. But that was the one that really landed in my brain. And everybody's going to know that reference. So that's why I just feel like it's a good one to use. But what you just mentioned is what I like so much about it is that you're reading along and one person gives their memory or their depiction of what happened. And the very next person has a completely different memory or a different angle that they're wanting to pursue or whatever it is. So you just get so many different perspectives 
And sometimes it's funny. Sometimes it makes you wonder what's going on. It's just a great way to get the story across. Did you write it as you went, like all of the characters going back and forth? Did you write each character, insert them together? What did that look like? Yeah, no, that's a, it's a great question. I, I definitely didn't write all the characters stand alone and then go backwards and, and intersperse them. That sounds a little too complicated for me. What I did is I truly figured out all the plot beats in a coherent fashion. And then I started writing the chapters and every you know quarter of a page, I would think to myself, okay, what other voice should come in here to, to confirm this, to contradict this, to add context to it. And that worked well for a while. And I was able to get a rough draft done that, that I liked, but the way this format really kind of benefited me is in those those second drafts, the you know, the subsequent drafts where I could just move stuff around so easily or go back into a chapter and realize, wow, if I just had Casey come in here and give her perspective on this scene, it, it'll clarify this or it, it'll make this so much more exciting. It it made the rewriting so easy. And that that was when I felt like I was kind of this like maestro can you know conducting the orchestra and i could just put these voices in wherever i needed them and I, it felt really exciting to do that i bet it did it's such an interesting format and there has to be such an interesting format as a writer yeah i mean i i was really pleased that i could just write in someone's actual voice without having what i would call like the prose so i didn't want to go overboard with having everyone have like different regional, you know, expressions or pet phrases. But I was conscious of like trying to think of all of these people think a different way. All of them have different life experiences and, you know, demographic differences. I need to make each one of them, you know, I guess there's a, an old screenwriting trick where it's you want to be able to cover up the name of the character and know who's talking and I, I was thinking about that. I was writing the book, of course, for the reader's benefit. I'm going to include the name of the character. I'm not going to try to put, make him, you know, solve a riddle. <laughs> but I, I liked for myself just being like, if I did cover up the name of this character, would I be able to realize who's talking? And that was a nice North Star for me to shoot towards. Make each character distinct. Exactly. I can't imagine if you didn't have the character name and then on top of everything, I was had to be like, now who's talking here? <laughs> I might have enjoyed the book a little less. <laughs> of course. You know you know what? Just to be really nitty gritty here, there was a debate about whether to include the, the title for each character. So, you know, for Casey, it says producer. For Dave, it says father. For someone else, it says detective. And I'm not sure that Daisy Jones did that. I'm not sure the other things did that. But I was adamant that every time you saw someone's name, you also had to see their occupation or relationship to the story. And I've heard from readers that that little extra context was really helpful in allowing them to kind of quickly read through everything without going back to the table of contents and, and figuring out who's who. I was just going to say that it really did help. So you weren't having to constantly flip to the front and be like, now, who is that again? Yes. Of course, Casey and Dave and some of the main people you would remember. Yeah, but if people disappear for 30 pages, you don't want to have to try to remember who they are. And the other thing that will really benefit readers in is when they're reading digitally, because I know it's so much harder reading digitally to try to flip to the front and flip back to where you were. So that is a, a very helpful thing for those people who aren't reading physical copies. Yeah. So I'm glad I'm glad we got that last detail in. Yeah, that's smart. Well, what surprised you the most when writing this book? You know, I think, and I, this has happened to me before, so it's a little bit of a trend now, is that 
I finished my first draft and I was pleased with it and I had done what I'd wanted to do and I, I gave it to some trusted people and they told me that that I needed one more big twist. And I was kind of grumpy to hear that, of course, whenever anyone tells you you have more work to do, especially when it's something difficult. And the more I thought about it, the more I finally realized they were right. And now I'm so grateful that I got that note early on and that I was able to, to have the time and the space to go in and figure out how to add a twist that was much more related to kind of my central themes and characters. Because the book started out with just the one twist that people will discover relatively quickly in the book. And I thought that was enough. And it, it turns out that it wasn't. And although I tried to fight about it for a week, I, I was overruled in the correct way. And I, I guess the lesson here is that just be a little more ambitious when you're, when you're outlining, when you're conceiving of the idea, because people want to have those, those big moments where their, their mind is blown and they didn't see something coming. And it's worthwhile to, to really think about that on the front end and not trying to be shoehorning it in once you have a draft written. I think there has been such a change in this idea that there's going to be a twist or a number of twists in stories and that readers are really looking for that these days as well. Right. So, so you have to, they're, they're smart, these readers. So you have to get out in front of them a little bit more than maybe you used to. And that's so funny that you say that where you are initially grumpy about it, like, leave me alone. I've written my book. But then I think your brain kind of plays with it. You sleep on it a few days and then you're like, okay, I guess you're right. Let me get going on it. Yeah, well, it, it really speaks to the tension that, that I struggle with, which is doing difficult work versus making your art better. And I'm resistant to doing difficult work because it's unpleasant when you're trying to do it. But afterwards, when you've made something you care about much better, it is so exciting and, and gratifying to have done that. And I wish that I could just speak to myself on, on the front end of this. And it, it you think I could, but it, it's hard to remember that when you're in the middle of it. Absolutely. Well, Daniel, I love covers and I think your cover is fabulous. Do you just love it? I do love it. And, you know, I wasn't obsessed with it at the beginning, but the more the more I look at it, the more I love it. And I don't know if if a reader in a bookstore will notice this in the first two seconds. But to me, this really gives me the the energy of this is a true crime documentary. And this is an aerial helicopter shot of the town that's at the center of this um, investigation. And it makes me feel like I'm watching the opening credits of a true crime series. And I don't think any of what I just said is explicitly clear in the cover. But that is what I feel when I look at it. And that is certainly the the tone that I'm trying to set, you know, especially with that that school bus centered in not the, not the literal crosshairs, but the metaphorical crosshairs of that that high angle camera shot. I don't know. I'm pretty obsessed with it. I think it's really great, and I love the spine with the stripes. I just think they hit it out of the ballpark. Yeah, that was really cool. I didn't know that was even coming for a long time, and then I got it. I was like, whoa, that that pops. And tell me about the title. You know what? The title, you might remember this as a little anecdote from the book, but the title is just a phrase that my little sister invented when she was probably five years old and I was eight years old. If my parents were watching a TV or a movie that we weren't allowed to watch, my sister would say, oh, is it a kill show? And she would say, I want to watch a kill show. When am I allowed to watch a kill show? She was really just describing, you know, an R-rated movie or something with violence. And it just became a little pet phrase in our family, which is really kind of funny to me. 
But as I was conceiving the idea for this book, I realized that this phrase, kill show, encompasses so much of this genre and it, it has that menacing tone to it. So it's, it's kind of lost its cuteness to me. But the fact that my sister invented it as a, you know, a glorified toddler, I just get a kick out of it being in blood red letters on this cover now. Does she love that it's the title of your book? She is thrilled. She's she's taking 1% of the credit for the book. And I, I you know what I got to say? I think that is a fair number. I love that. I do remember it from the book. I was just curious how it actually came to be the title. And I love that you picked it because I think it's perfect. Yes, it makes it feel like it's a big family production. Exactly. Well, before we wrap up, what have you read recently that you really liked? You know, I'm always like six months or a year behind the the books that everyone else is reading. I just read, um, I have some questions for you, right? Which is relatively, have you read that? I have, uh-huh. Okay, so it ha- has some similar themes to my book. So I was really interested in that. I thought I thought the author did a great job with that book, especially kind of introducing what I was referring to as like chapter tr- two of the true crime era. All those things were addressed. Um, I just read The Immortalists. Have you read that? Is that the Chloe Benjamin one? It is, yes. Yes, I have. I read it a while ago. The one where they know their, their death dates. Exactly. And I'm not usually a fan of kind of like magical realism, if, they, if that's what you want to call it. But I loved the the settings and the time period of this book. And I, I lived for a little bit of time on the Lower East Side and that the family that she was following grew up on the Lower East Side. It was so interesting to see it kind of develop. And then, of, of course, like every other kind of cliche man of my generation, I've just finished uh, The Wager by David Graham, which is just about a ship trying to sail around uh, South America and all the bad things that happen. So that that's always enjoyable to someone who's never been on a sailboat. I am not really a sailboat or ship person, so I have not read that one. But I need to read his last book because I think the movie's coming out soon, the one I never can remember. Oh, yes, Killers of the Flower Moon, which I am very excited about that. Yeah, although I just heard it's three and a half hours long where that'll test you, three and a half hours. Three and a half hours is really long. I did not know that, but I keep seeing all the previews for it. Yes, well, clear a weekend in the future and you can watch the whole thing. Exactly. Read the book and then watch the whole thing. I'll clear the whole weekend. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for joining me today to talk about Kill Show, and I cannot wait for it to make its way out into the world. I, I appreciate you advocating for it. I appreciate you talking to me. It's been a pleasure. So thank you very much. Hi there. I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardnopodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. I would love to connect with you on Instagram or Facebook, where you can find me at Thoughts From A Page. If you enjoy this show, please consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. If you have a moment to rate the show or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts, I would really appreciate it. It makes a big difference. 
And please tell all of your friends about Thoughts from a Page. Word of mouth does wonders to help the show grow. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast.